welcome to another all-new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I am your host, Tyler, joined by Matt. And we're going to be joined in the back half of the show by Tim Daniel to talk about the specifics of the Xavier Musketeers ahead of their game with St. Bonaventure. But before that, in this all-NIT episode, we're joined by probably the biggest promoter of the NIT on Twitter, NIT Stu. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, guys. So on your on your Twitter bio, you are the self-proclaimed NIT's biggest fan. And I, I think we can all say you're an expert of the original premier men's college basketball championship. But the first thing, how excited are you to have the championship coming back to Madison Square Garden this week? Because last year, you know, it was in the bubble, wasn't really the same without fans. And two years ago, we didn't even have the NIT. So what are you looking forward to about that going back to the home of this championship? It's really special. It's a really, I mean, it's obviously the world's world's greatest basketball arena. It's, uh, I assume that it became that from its all, its long running relationship with the NIT. So I would imagine that Madison Square Garden is, is honored to have the NIT back itself, but it is, it's really exciting. It's, uh, last year was great to have the NIT again and Frisco and Denton did an awesome job hosting it. But at the same time, I mean, it's Madison Square Garden. It's New York City. It's it's such a special place, and the NIT itself having so much history there does add a lot of depth to that too. So I'm really excited to see it back in such a cool place. Yeah, and we're going into the Final Four here. We, of course, have talked a lot about St. Bonaventure and Xavier. The matchup on the other side, Texas A&M and Washington State, and there was a stat kind of making the rounds on Twitter today all the different teams that have made as many elite eights as St. Peter's and Washington state was one of them. And obviously we should give St. Peter's their props because anyone who can win three games in any postseason tournament is having a good season. But why is, why do people care so much about this when Washington state has just locked down a trip to the garden, something that St. Peter's has never had in their history. Exactly. I mean, for St. Peter's playing right across the river, um, you know, they're really, they've been missing out. I think it's possible St. Peter's played in it way back in the day. I forget what their exact numbers are, but there is this aspect of the St. Peter's season where they didn't qualify for the NIT. Um, they, had they not gotten hot and won three games in the MAC tournament, it would have been a totally different story for them and they wouldn't have been an NIT team themselves. So I think that that's, that's a piece of the St. Peter's narrative that isn't getting talked about enough is, um, yeah, the Max auto bid went to Iona. It didn't go to St. Peter's. So just going to state that there. And yeah, I mean, huge, huge week for Washington State basketball. The, to my knowledge, really the high points in their history in a lot of cases were, you know, they had a few great years with Tony Bennett. They had the Clay Thompson days. And um, even in those, they weren't able to make the NIT Final Four, to my knowledge. So this is a huge, a huge day for, uh, for the state of Washington, a huge week for the state of Washington. And uh, I'll be interested to see how they travel coming across the country, being the furthest away from MSG. Yeah, and St. Peter's has not been to the NIT since 1989. Their last win in the tournament came in 1980, ironically, against the Duquesne Dukes. Oh, there it is. All right, man, a little A-10 tie-in there. Yeah, I, I will say I, my sister-in-law sent me a picture of St. Peter's NIT banner 
trips this week, but I, I did not commit that to memory. I was, I was a little more focused on the, uh, the real tournament going on, which is the MIT. So you're the expert here. Who's going to win this thing across the final four? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's two ways to look at it, right? There's, um, you can really trust the numbers and you can trust Ken Palm and you can say Washington state's the best team there. Um, they've only been playing better every single game down the stretch. They were a team that fit this archetype of like, kind of had some hard luck, had a lot of weird losses, um, throughout the season and now it's clicking and they're grooving. So that's one way to look at it. And another way to look at it though, um, is vibes and St. Bonaventure is coming down. They, we would imagine that they'll have the best, um, that they'll have the best crowd there of any of the schools. They certainly are making the most noise about it. From what I'm seeing, the school was the most invested in it of the four. Um, and I think that that can go a long way too. So uh, that's kind of hedging a little bit. I would say that if I had to pick right now, based on my own recollections of recent NITs, I would go with the best team on paper and go with Washington State. But it really is one of those weekends. There's one of those weeks where anybody can win this. And I don't know that we've had a, uh, an NIT that close at the end between all four teams in a while and i see the note about washington state in 2011 my apologies for that i uh i missed that they had had made it that year so that's that's on me clearly slacking on my history right now yeah it was a crossover their greatest year ever they lost to wichita state in the 2011 nit final four with clay okay. thompson who then quickly left to become a lottery pick i think he felt like he had hit the pinnacle at that point well, yeah, once you get that exposure, I mean, Steph Curry, I believe, also made the jump from the NIT to the, uh, he did. To the NBA. If I'm remembering right, I think that his, his final postseason appearance was at the NIT, but that's another one I haven't refreshed recently. Yeah, he, I he mean, maybe the, maybe the Warriors are just mining the NIT. I, th- I think that makes sense because, yeah, both Steph and Clay had NCAA tournament appearances. Both stuck around, though, afterward, leaving early in their college careers, but they needed to make it into both tournaments before they had reached all of their goals in college. So that could be it. And it worked out for the Warriors. Clearly they needed players with that experience playing in oh, both well, tournaments. Once maybe. you can see that a guy can win in Madison Square Garden too, that's 129 for the battle in the NBA. And so speaking of Madison Square Garden, so obviously a really big deal that the NIT is coming back there this week, but it sounds like the Final Four will not be played at MSG the next couple of years. What are your thoughts on that? And are there any venues that you would hope? I know like Hinkle Fieldhouse has been thrown around a little bit, but is there anywhere that you think could be a proper home, at least for the short term? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely sad. It's the kind of thing that you hope is temporary. You hope that it gets back there eventually um, for all parties, just because that's where the history is. And it is, I mean, New York City... Uh, I know a lot of people have bad feelings about New York City or like hot takes about New York City, but it's still, it's New York, and especially with basketball, of all, all the sports, there's something really special about New York. Um, I do think there's a lot of good options out there. Um, on the one side of it, you know, you've had, I mean, we had the NIT last year in the suburbs of Dallas, Fort Worth, and it was a good NIT. I mean, we had good teams, good competition, a great Memphis team won it. Penny Hardaway launched a, 
I mean, evidently drew the NCAA's ire based on what we're seeing this week uh, coming out about Penny Hardaway. But it is the fact that you can have the NIT there and that it's still got so much pop this year, not to hate on Frisco and Denton, but Frisco, Texas and Denton, Texas are not towns that you're really thinking about as like the pinnacle of college basketball. So when I heard that Hinkle Fieldhouse was at least in consideration, that was exciting for me. When I heard Las Vegas was in consideration, making it a destination of sorts, that's a big deal. Because the thing that you really want the most is you want there to be fans in the building for these guys um, last games in a lot of cases. And they all play with the, uh, I mean, it's a single elimination postseason basketball tournament. It's do or die and they play like it. And having fans there who match that energy is so important. So I personally, I would be thrilled with Hinkle. I feel like the city of Indianapolis, the state of Indiana in general, they show up for everything. They love hosting live sports. It's, I mean, it's the basketball state in America. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I'm curious about a, a city like Cincinnati where basketball and college basketball specifically is a huge deal. I'm curious about, um, I mean, the Las Vegas option would be really cool. It, being such a destination is great. It would be interesting to see the NITB out West after being an East Coast tournament for so much of its life. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of good options. And I think if it does bounce around for a few years too, that can end up being really good for the NIT. It could end up adding a lot of exposure too and that kind. But uh, I do personally hope that it gets back to MSG eventually. So beyond the venue shift this year, what's one other tweak that you would make to improve the NIT? Obviously the most storied and historic tournament, but not the one that draws the most eyeballs. So whether it's a format change or rules change, maybe a schedule change, how do you think they can make it better? That's a great question. We kind of, I was doing this kind of thing on a text chain with buddies this week and we kind of ended up right back where we started. I think the one, the biggest thing that I would say, the biggest challenge for the NIT is its second round. Its second round falls on the Saturday and Sunday of the first weekend of that other tournament. And it's on ESPN, it's on ESPN2, ESPN U, ESPN Plus, like it's all over the place. But uh, college basketball fans are generally a little preoccupied that weekend. So that would be something where I'd be curious if um, you'd be able to, to change that up a little bit. I think one thing they did this year that was a really good idea is they did away. So they only seeded the top half of the bracket. They seeded the top four seeds in each of the regions. Then everything after that was geographic. So it minimized travel, which minimizes cost for the schools, but also created some cool regional matchups. I mean, within Ohio, you had Xavier playing Cleveland State. You had Dayton playing Toledo. Um, down, I'm trying to think about what some of the other ones were. Those were the first that came to mind. Actually, I think they got the bracket right here. But, um, oh, yeah, North Texas, Texas State. That was a cool interregional. Sorry, I just rustled a bunch of papers right behind my mic. Um, North Texas, Texas State was a cool interstate matchup just up by 35 from each other here in here in texas so i think that was something that they did that can draw up a lot of local interest and you saw some great crowds for those games specifically yeah and, and for me you mentioned the second round one thing that came to mind is they should have an east coast second round game at 11 a.m saturday and sunday because yeah. the ncaa tournament doesn't kick off till 12 15 and there's a lot mm -hmm. of people just sitting around around 11 o'clock kind of waiting for the basketball to start too yeah. close to commit to doing anything else. And so instead of putting like 
I believe VCU played at four or five o'clock that day. Once the NCAAs had, was starting to roll into that three games at a time mode. And yeah. now you're looking at four or five basketball games at once where they could have just dominated for an hour. Like the America East championship does on championship Saturday. That's a great example. Yeah. For people who are just trying to get that college basketball fixed early in the day. Um, yeah. That's an inroad right there. And then maybe they see it. They're like, Hey, the NIT is great. I'm going to keep watching. I wonder too. So that was interesting. This was the first time the NIT didn't see the bottom half of the bracket. And I know, um, like you said, it benefited with a lot of really good regional matchups, but I wonder if they foresaw two unseeded teams playing each other because we ended up having St. Bonaventure and Virginia make it to the quarterfinals. I think we all just kind of assumed the game would be played in Olean. And then later that night, we found out it would be at Virginia. So another road game for the Bonnies. I wonder yeah. how they would handle that in the future, though, just if they would do something similar. That was wild. I, I know I had a moment that night. Like, as soon as they started revealing the brackets, they didn't announce it ahead of time. And so the question that I asked, and I think John Templon, uh, I don't know if that's what he says in a last name or not. I just realized I've only seen it in writing. He's kind of the OG NIT bracketologist out there. Um, we started asking, like, what's going to happen if these teams play? And I guess that they did have a seed list, 1-32, to 32, but then they wouldn't release that. Um, so it's there were some St. Bonaventure fans kind of on the release the documents kick, which is very fair. That was definitely a, a plot twist for them, having to stay on the road. Um, yeah, I think that's something that could have been a lot more transparent and should have been a lot more transparent. And, um, and even just announcing it one round in advance probably would have saved a lot of the headache if they just said, hey, if these two teams play, it's at Virginia. Or I forget whether there were other situations where that could have come into play or not. It was a pretty chalky tournament this year in the early rounds. Not a lot of the unseeded teams did win. Yeah, and, and speaking of NIT bracketology, so you guys do some of that on the site you write for, The Barking Crow. What are some of the challenges that come with doing NIT bracketology because clearly it, it's different than the NCAAs like I wonder how do you handle some of the auto bid situations basically you need to figure out which teams are winning enough games but not too many maybe in some cases so how does that process work yeah so this I can get really nerdy about this um the what we do during the season is we we just the whole thing is just a little um formula basically it's just a little computer program um and all that it really does is look at during the season it looks at each team's median result kind of what happens over the rest of the year and then lines them up in order but what we do for the auto bids during the season to try to give people a good idea of where that cut line is going to fall um is we just look at what's the most likely number of automatic bids so is it eight is it 12 is it 10 and then we have in these simulations, you can see, okay, there's a, you know, a 46% chance that Vermont loses in the A East tournament if they even are the one seed, that kind of thing. And we want it up and just go with the most likely based on that. So that is, I mean, that's a huge complication to it. Last year was complicated because of the opt-outs. We just had no idea who was and wasn't going to play in the NIT. And it's really rare for teams to opt out, but Last year, a lot did uh, with COVID and everything. So that was big. The other, the only other huge one I would say is there's been this question going around the last few years of whether a team can make it if they're below 500 overall. Um, 
I think one of the hardest things about the NIT is kind of like the seeding thing. Most of what happens with the NIT doesn't get a press release. So for a long time, they had a rule that said you can't make it if you're under 500. And then at some point they got rid of that rule or said they did according to Wikipedia, but there was never a source. So it was like, I don't know if I missed something or if this was just coming from Wikipedia and we still haven't seen a sub 500 team make it. So that's something that like Penn State fans, um, a certain subset of Penn State fans were like, what's going on with the sub 500 thing? And we don't really know either. And we ended up, this year is the first year that we changed our model to say like, we're just going to keep sub 500 teams out of it because we haven't seen it yet. So, and you mentioned opt-outs. Other than last year, obviously for COVID, a lot of teams just didn't want to play and it was a smaller tournament. Do you remember any team opting out besides the LSU team where Ben Simmons just quit? <laughs> That's a great example. Because I know, I know for sure they opted out. That was very public. Yeah, it was, it's, uh, I don't know. A lot of it happens again behind closed doors. You don't always know. There's some instances where you're like, oh, I think that team must have opted out. But even that, it's pretty rare. There's, it's well documented that Georgetown did it maybe 20 years ago. I think they maybe even got put in the bracket and declined. I don't know the full story there. Um, the other reason why I remember is the last time Georgia had a coaching transition, um, blanking on his name, was it Mark Fox was the guy before Tom Crean? He was already out. They, the players, Georgia was probably going to get like a two or a three seed. So it's clear that they were in the NIT. They were right in that sweet spot. And the players took a vote on whether or not they wanted to play and then just kind of told the world we would prefer not to, and the NIT didn't invite them. But they had signed the documents that said we will play and all that, because that happens in a few weeks in advance as the teams that have any shot, the NCAA kind of sends around the paperwork, um, So, which I assume is what facilitates the process for the committee then on that Sunday. So I, I actually can confirm. I, I do know the 2013 Dayton Flyers opted out of the NIT. Although, oh, really? Okay. Well, but it, it was all like, you know, it, it was a nothing burger. They went 17 and 14 and finished 12th in the A10, so they weren't getting a bid. I oh, think really what okay. they're saying is we don't want to go to the CBI either. Got um, it, got it. Okay. But, you know, since we are an A10 podcast, it, it's yeah. been back-to-back seasons where the A10 has sent four teams each year which i i guess that has to be the most out of any conference so I think i'm just here last two years for sure yeah and so i'm just wondering like has the a10 i mean you know we are the three bid league that hasn't really <laughs> happened in any case like ncaa's or nit i don't think but has the a10 started to become a league where you've paid more attention to just because of the volume of teams that we're sending Oh, definitely. You guys are, you're hitting that sweet spot. It's hard to fit a lot of teams in there where you don't want to be too good, but you don't want to be too bad. And I mean, the Mountain West can't do that this year. I, uh, I mean, it was a surprise that they got Utah State in. It was, that was a team that I thought was going to be on the outside looking in. So yeah, the A-10 has really found that niche of just hammering the NIT and being in that, having that regionality close to, uh, close to New York. I mean, obviously the tournament may be moving next year, but Hey, I mean, y'all are moving West too. Add Loyola, you already have St. Louis and everything. If it does go to Hinkle, that's a, that's still an A-10 country right there. Um, so yeah, I, I love having the A-10 involved, especially because the A-10, um, like really the big East and not other leagues of y'all stature, I guess the West coast conference is like, that's such a different animal though, because of how, uh, 
separated it is from top to bottom, but it's just such a pure basketball league in a lot of cases. Like that is so much the main show in town, but it's really fun to have A10 teams in the NIT because the A10 fan base cares about whatever basketball is being played. So lastly, you've put together this whole big NIT bracket challenge this year. I believe it was somewhere around three to 400 entries. You had a full celebrity list. What, is, what has impressed you most about how that's come together? Is it the amount of people? Is it someone that's actually signed up to do this thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, uh, there, I had a weird encounter with a PFT commenter of pardon my take at a, I like kind of stalked him down in the bar here two and a half years ago, just told him like, Hey, I blog about the NIT. I exist. Um, it was, it was a weird, not my, not my most normal moment or like smoothest moment as a person. He evidently remembered that and, uh, shouted out the blog on the, um, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And that led to a lot of the entries and he entered. So that was the biggest surprise. And I would say has been the most impressive thing just strategically though. And this is actually something that is a, an important part of the story for this week too. There's a ton of Texas A&M fans out there. Texas A&M like far and away the most popular pick to win it all. Um, it's such a huge school. They got people all over. So that's one, that's the one I'm most curious to see how they show up at MSG as a fan base because it's just such a large fan base and I, I'm exposed to it a lot being here in Texas but um, I'm curious how that's going to translate in New York and that was something we saw a lot in our bracket challenge not just that everybody or that so many people were picking Texas A&M to win but also it's like every one of the emails is like Texas Aggies 053 or like Aggie fan 8 um, just over and over again. And I, I mean, maybe they were Utah State Aggie fans, but I was taking it as Texas A&M fans. All right, so three games left. we got the Final Four coming this week. To you, what is the single most exciting thing that can happen during these three games? Oh, man. I mean, barring a fight, which is always really exciting, but I probably shouldn't, like, cheer for too publicly. Um, I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's already set itself up, so – dramatically you've got the a10 reunion going on between bonaventure and xavier i do think bonaventure making the championship would create the biggest environment although xavier travels really well as well they came down here to austin in 2019 for nit second round game and brought a good number of fans um i mean really just having close basketball games both 2018 and 2019 the last title games in madison square garden and i think 2017 as well when tcu won it um all three of those were pretty decisive victories for the champion. So having a really close championship game would be a good change of pace. That's, uh, that's something even last year in uh, Frisco we didn't really get. Yeah, hopefully we get some great games. Stu, where can everyone find your great coverage of the original college basketball tournament? Oh, thank you. It's at www.thebarkingcrow.com. Um, and then on Twitter, on Instagram, at The Barking Crow, Twitter, at NIT underscore STU. Um, and I'll be, I'll be anywhere NIT games are played, at least spiritually, if not physically. All right, Stu, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you guys so much. This was fun. Join the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network on Saturday, April 30th for Purple Stride, the ultimate event to end pancreatic cancer. 
Learn more and register for free today at purplestride.org backslash the city closest to you. All right, we are now joined by Tim Daniel from 48 Minutes Basketball Network. We're going to dig super deep into Xavier here and preview this St. Bonaventure matchup. Tim, thanks for joining us. Excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, I miss the old A10 days and very romantic at heart about them, so it's fun to kind of go talk about it again. Yeah, it's been 10 years since the Xavier St. Bonaventure A10 championship game when Andrew Nicholson got the Bonnies to the tournament in his senior year, a yeah. game that has really been uh, romanticized in the memories of the Bonnies fans this week. But now we get a rematch in Madison Square Garden as we see if St. Bonaventure's super senior Ironman 5 can come home with a trophy this year. But this is a pretty quality Xavier team, uh, one of the best teams to be left out of the NCAA tournament. I believe they were somewhere around sixth or seventh team out. Top 70 in Ken Palm in both offense and defense. It's a team that's strong all over the floor. They have a ton of guys who contribute in the scoring department. Their leading scorer is, Zach, is Jack Nunge, if I'm saying that correctly. Nunge, about, yeah. Nunge at about 13.3 points a game. So what's the key for Xavier? What's the most important thing for the Musketeers to succeed in just a normal game? Well, now that Paul Scruggs is hurt, that really has taken a lot of their identity away. Um, seeing him tear his ACL in the Florida game, that just absolutely was just gut-wrenching. Um, but really, you know, a lot of people look at like X's and O's. This team is just like, if they're focused, if they play hard, like they're really good. And, uh, the Vanderbilt game was a perfect example. There were so many stretches where they were down eight, nine points and they would come back and make a run again and take the lead. I mean, you know, five minutes to go in the Vanderbilt game, you know, with a chance to keep your season going, they're down eight points. And then uh, Adam Kunkel like kind of gets going, makes a couple of fadeaway baskets. Cause I mean, if you look at the numbers, yeah. Offensive, defensively, like you said, in Kempom, top 70 in both. But they're not a great shooting team. Um, you know, they're, they're an all-effort team. And they're athletic as can be. I mean, they do have good shooters like Nate Johnson, Adam Kunkel, who I just mentioned. And Jack Nungy's a good shooter for a big man. Um, but they're just an, they're an all-effort team, man. If they're playing hard, they're going to be in every game. But if it's like they get down and they get, they get in their heads, they're donezo. And that's really what happened to them down the stretch of the Big East play. Yeah, and I guess like with that effort in mind, so overall, looking at Xavier, they are one of the biggest teams in the country. They're 20th in average height on Ken Palm. Um, you know, with Jack Nungy, he's a seven-footer, and then you also got Zach Fremantle. So really big front line for the Musketeers. Do you think that size could cause St. Bonaventure any problems? Because really, outside of Oshun Oshunayi, it's a Bonnie's team that plays a lot of just like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six wing type players. So... Is that something where you mentioned Xavier's not a great shooting team, so do they normally try to pound it inside to some of their taller guys? So, yeah, um, and to an extent, because you mentioned those guys, but like, guys like Deontay Miles, who's seven feet tall, barely plays. Like, I think he played seven minutes of Big East this year. Um, Cesar Edwards, their freshman big, they're really excited about. Uh, it's really up and coming. Um, he had, like, one shot in the Vanderbilt game, but it was a three, and it really kind of, adjusted so much to them. Jonas Hayes, the interim coach, loves all those guys. Um, and Xavier tries to do that, you know, with Fremantle and Nunji. They play a lot of um, high-low and a lot of buddy ball. And you kind of see them use that a lot. That's what they were really successful with in non-conference when they really looked like, you know, one of the top 25 teams in the country. I mean, they were awesome in non-conference this year. 
Um, but when Jonas Hayes took over in the first game, you actually saw him go more small. So if you go back and look at the Florida game, he started um, Paul Scruggs, who you know was a tall point guard, but like I said, they don't have him anymore, which sucks. Uh, Nate Johnson, Colby Jones was playing the four, who's normally a two for them, and Adam Kunkel and Jack Nungy. Um, but you know they do rotate Fremantle into that quite a bit. They're really heavy with their top six guys. And then they kind of sprinkle guys in uh, here and there, like a Cesar Edwards occasionally. Deontay Miles actually did end up playing in the Vanderbilt team to kind of give them some size there as well. So, yeah, I mean, if things go right, absolutely that could be something to give St. Bonaventure fits. But you're talking about a very veteran lad team who has seen everything at this point. Like you said, they're, you know, you guys called them the Iron Men of the A-10 just about. And, like, they really, I mean, what has St. Bonaventure seen in the, like, the seniors together that they haven't, what will Xavier show them they haven't seen yet in college basketball in their tenure? So that's what makes this really interesting. Well, one thing that St. Bonaventure's seen a lot of this year is teams raining threes down on them. Yeah. And by all indication, Xavier is not the kind of team to be able to inflict that level of damage. We, now, we have seen some guys who are not particularly great three-point shooters go on heaters against the Bonnies, although not at all in this – NIT uh, in three games, they've really only gotten hurt by Gibson on Oklahoma. Is there anybody on Xavier who maybe could get hot and try to swing this game? Absolutely. Uh, two guys in particular are Nate Johnson. Um, last year before Nate Johnson got hurt, he was the top three-point shooter in the country. Um, he's a career, I think, 40% shooter between his time at Gardner-Webb and at Xavier. He, you know, when he is on, um, he looks like he could be a guy that's drafted at the end of the NBA draft. He, he's got that kind of shooting skill set. Um, and he's got the confidence to shoot. He's not scared of any shot, and that's something you really like about him. But my issue with Nate Johnson at times is, as much as I love him as a shooter, when he's not involved in a play, he kind of doesn't really play much decoy ball. Um, but, you know, yeah, you get him going, that's big. I mentioned Adam Kunkel. I've followed Adam since high school. He uh, went to my rival high school, actually. So seeing him here has been cool. And he's another guy that when he gets going, he had a game this year where he was 8 of 8 from 3. Um, it was pretty impressive. So those are the two guys that if you're worried about Xavier making shots, those are the two guys you worry about. Otherwise, they're going to play drive and dish ball, cut to the rim. Um, you know, Colby Jones is probably an NBA player. Uh, I think, you know, you're, ta- you're seeing him pop up on big boards. He's not leaving this year. Like Sam Vicente from the ring, uh, from the athletic had him in his top 40, I think, this last big board. So, But Jones is more of a slasher. He's the best rebounding guard I think I've seen Xavier have in a long time. But that's really kind of where they kind of differentiate. So, yeah, they are not a great three-point shooting team, but if Johnson or Kunkel get hot, that can really change things around. Yeah, and I think with Xavier, it's just – it's been an interesting season. Like you mentioned, really, really good in the non-conference. They were hanging around the top 25 for several weeks in a row, but struggled down the stretch of the season. And I think the big news right after the season, they decided to move on from Travis Steele – I'm just curious, is there anything from these last three games of the NIT run, like specific to this sudden improvement to now where they're beating quality teams here in the NIT, or is it just more, have they gotten back to what made them great back in November and December? Also, please explain to us who the hell their coach is now. Yeah, that's another (laughs) good question. All right, so technically, Sean Miller is back as the head coach at Xavier, but the agreement was that Jonas Hayes is going to be the interim through the remainder of the season, so the remainder of NIT play. Um, so Sean just had his introductory press conference on Friday. A-10 fans are very familiar with Sean Miller. 
um, <laughs> obviously from his time coaching at Xavier. Now his brother's the head coach at Rhode Island. Um, but you know, to kind of answer your question, I think a lot of it is really just kind of like, so you mentioned there being college opponents. The last two games, yes. Uh, if you go back and like you want to see basketball get set back about five or ten years, watch the Cleveland State game in the first round because it was brutal. It was not an entertaining game at all. Um, they didn't play very well. They just got by on talent and Dennis Gates really kind of taking Cleveland State out of the game and making some bad decisions down the stretch. Um, but, you know, the Florida game, it kind of felt like even though it was close, they kind of still had it in control the whole time. And they played their ass off. Um, I, can I say that on here? I'm sorry if I can't. I hear you. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, they played really hard and they put a bunch of effort in. And like, I was scared when Scruggs got hurt. You know, um, your fifth year senior who's your leader gets hurt and tears his ACL. It's like, how do you respond to that? And they responded really well. I think just that maximum effort, that fight for rebounding with the old Xavier way of just being really aggressive. And I know it's so cliche and people around here hate hearing the word Xavier way, but that's what they did in these last two games. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel with team and cover them, not with the team specifically, but I've, I've covered them in different areas. You know, I've covered the big East tournament. I covered a couple of years ago when they played in the Charleston classic with St. Joe's actually totally forgot St. Joe's mascot does not put his arms down the whole game. That's amazing. That guy's got to have incredible biceps. Um, but just kind of seeing like we're getting back to that mentality of like, we can out tough you is really what's kind of stood out the most. And, you know, to be two sec teams, a Vanderbilt team who was really coming on at the end of the year with Jerry Stackhouse at the leading the way it was really impressive. Yeah, and that makes for really an interesting battle here. This Bonaventure team, while undersized, is incredibly tough, and especially at this point where there is kind of some last dance feelings to this where the guys could all come back, but I would seriously, seriously doubt that these five are going to play together next year no matter what happens in this. I think it's kind of a last run for them here. So it'll be interested, interesting to see who can win that toughness battle, who can win this game on the boards. I agree. And I think that's a great point. Um, you look at a situation here where, like I said, the past few weeks, uh, Xavier has been, um, you know, since Jonas Hayes took over to kind of hold the fort down until the end of the year, uh, they've played a lot more small. And now that Paul Scruggs is out, they've like played a little bit small. So you know, they got away against Florida with and, uh, again, with using Colby Jones as a four just because of his rebounding ability. But, you know, when he's going against a guy like Jalen Attaway, like, I don't know if he can get away with that as much. Um, I mean, sure, Attaway is maybe not as skilled as a guy who plays at Florida or Vanderbilt, but he's a really good basketball player and a guy who's very aggressive on the board. So that's going to be something where Xavier's going to have to figure things out. Um, earlier, you mentioned um, Asuni. You know, that's, a, that's the, probably the biggest guy Jack Nungy's played since – uh, Nate Watson from Providence. I mean, so you're kind of looking at that situation too. It's like, how does that, how do they kind of go there? Cause when Xavier does rebound, they're a really good team, but there are times when they get beat on the boards and it seems like the effort's not there. And that's when it's, you know, they start to crumble. Yeah. And the Musketeers have, uh, have won the rebounding battle in those two games since the Travis Steele firing against two good SEC teams. St. Bonaventure, and this is just an incredible stat of the week, has finished tied in rebounding in all three of their NIT games so far. No kidding. I didn't 21 know that. A piece, 23 apiece in the Colorado game, 22 apiece against Oklahoma, 27 apiece against Virginia. I will say what they're doing right now being St. Bonaventure, um, I paid a lot of attention to them at the beginning of the year, obviously, when uh, they were, you know, 
in the, when they were ranked and they were making a push. Um, what they're doing in the IT right now is the road team on all three games and going in there and winning. It's been really fun to watch and really impressive. So we all, we were in the media room during the Vanderbilt game, uh, keeping an eye on the St. Bonaventure game because they were the game right before. Just kind of like, man, imagine if we get that old A-10 game again. Also, I don't think Xavier really wanted to play Virginia. I don't think they were very excited about that matchup. Yeah, I don't think anyone would be. I, I just, so I have a trivia question related oh, to Xavier in the NIT. And so, Tyler, I, I'm, Tim, I'm sure you might know this, but Tyler, maybe you don't. Do you know how many NIT appearances Xavier has since the beginning of the Thad Mata era? Because I just checked this and it blew my mind. Well, it's probably like four or five because they're always good enough to not finish in CBI territory. Yeah, I was going to say maybe four? No, it's two. Just 2019, the first year with Travis Steele. And that blew my mind. Xavier, literally, they make the tournament like every year. And like one or two years under Sean Miller. And like, I think there's one Sean Miller year, one Chris Mack year, where maybe they just declined an NIT invite or something. They declined it last year in uh, 2020. Yeah, but I just couldn't believe that. So pretty much, I mean, if you look down there, like Wikipedia, it's just tournament appearance, like Sweet 16, second round, Sweet 16. So I don't know. Does the NIT inexperience hurt Xavier? Because really, like in general too, it's just they've made so many tournaments. They haven't, they've only played in six NITs since the, the 1950s which or the end of the 1950s which was unbelievable to me yeah i so, think they won one in the 50s they did they, I, they beat dayton in 1958 i just checked. that's what it was okay yeah um that's yeah it's so funny you say that i will say this about it um you know everyone was really disappointed they didn't make the tournament but you know like you said if you look at that february stretch they had a hard time convincing the committee that they could be in and that first four and ten their last 14 for anyone who's not familiar yeah, pretty rough. Um, you know, and the wins were like Georgetown. Actually, the UConn win was a really good win. That was what was keeping them on the bubble for a while mm-hmm. there. Um, but, you know, um, after that Cleveland State game, it seemed like everyone here I kind of bought into the NIT and got really excited about it. Uh, Jonas Hayes talked quite a bit in his presser after Vanderbilt about, um, you know, they feel like they have unfinished business going back to the Garden. Uh, they're really mad because they lost to Butler in the first round, in the first game when they knew they needed it and they didn't play well. And it seems like Jonas has kind of brought some energy back to this team. So I think if Sean Miller does not bring Jonas back, they're going to be hurting a little bit there for a bit. Yeah, and my last comment on on all of these coaches, Matt has made it very clear, if you are a school that is struggling and striving for an NIT invite, Travis Steele could be your guy. Yeah. Three NIT, three NIT invites in four years at the helm. That is, uh, that would be good success for like a Mac team or someone in the SoCon. Yeah, Miami of Ohio was a name. Uh, Miami of Ohio was a team people were kind of potentially talking about. See if he might have interest in going there. God, if he uh, can get them to the basketball classic, that's an upgrade. Yeah, I love Travis. I, I, I was, you know, I understood the move, but I was heartbroken for him just because I got to know him really well from covering the team. So that's a guy I'm always going to root for. I always want him to succeed. And I, I think for Xavier too, like you can't fault them for making the hire. I mean, really going back to like Skip Prosser, they've, they've kept it in the family with their head coaches. They promote from within and it, it's something that's so hard. And I'll say like at the time, Xavier was a mid-major program when they're in the A-10 and it's so hard for a team like that to continue success. And we've seen something similar with VCU. I, I think they're yeah, like the next right. best example. 
But um, yeah, I mean, I like hindsight, yeah, it didn't work out, but they've had such a great line of coaches that it made sense at the time. It did. And, you know, Travis was a great guy and there was times when they played really well and you thought maybe they can make that run that they've been waiting for. But yeah, just for some reason in February, they just couldn't put it together. So let's see if that changes now with Sean back. So we'll put a, we'll put one last little bow on the game here. Uh, we haven't talked much about Xavier on the defensive end, pretty solid defensive team. As I mentioned, 68th in Ken Palm on defense this year. They are decent at forcing turnovers. They're very good at shutting down the three-pointer and pretty solid at shutting down the two-pointer. So are there any potential holes in the Savior defense somewhere where St. Bonaventure could gain an advantage? Because as we've seen in this tournament, there's really no one or two ways that you have to shut down St. Bonaventure. If you're going to win this game, you're going to have to beat them at, at all five spots. Yeah, and that's that's big. Um, there are definitely times when Xavier's – I hate to keep bringing back the effort thing because it sounds so cliche and corny. But, yeah, I mean, if you look at, go back and watch the film from those Big East games, there's a ton of times where, like, there's a guy sitting in the uh, sitting by himself in the three because they didn't get back in the corner, and they just didn't get to him. Um, you know, if they're not tapped in, bad things happen with them defensively. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. They're really good at def- uh, defending the perimeter. Um, they're they get they're really good at getting in the passing lanes, but there are definitely times when they're very lackadaisical, and you see like, you know, Dwan Odom doesn't chase down a chance to get a long rebound, and someone else gets it. Um, so, if St. Bonaventure out toughs them, which like you said, they're a very tough team, and they, you know, are on their p's and q's and execute their x's and o's really well, um, that's really going to probably lead to St. Bonaventure playing Thursday night. All right, so it sounds to me like the two big matchups in this game, can someone get a significant edge in the rebounding battle in either direction and try to swing that? And then one big wild card for Xavier, can Adam Kunkel or Nate Johnson just really get going against the Bonaventure perimeter defense that has looked the best it has really all year these last three games? Yeah, I would say that's perfectly fine. It's really fun. It's a really good matchup. Um, you mentioned Ken Palm has Xavier winning by one. Vegas has St. Bonaventure favorited by one. So it's like, it's a very hard game to decide. And, and last NIT related question before we go into some, some old school Xavier stuff. Uh, if the Musketeers were to win this, you know, things are changing. Sean Miller's coming in. Are the Musketeer fans particularly excited about this week? Is this something they're going to care about, hang a banner for? Absolutely, they are. Uh, this is a you know, um, you know Matt mentioned it a few minutes ago. Like this is a very proud, proud fan base. Uh, it's a very proud organization, and it's a team that's been waiting for postseason success since Chris Mack left. Um, you know, obviously, you know they seem to say that 2020 doesn't get canceled. They would have made the tournament. I don't necessarily believe that because they lost to Paul in the first night of the Big East tourney. Um, but yeah, I think that. That, you know, I hate to keep referencing the Vanderbilt game, but it's, you know, it's the closest reference I have. The energy in that game felt like an NCAA tournament game. Both, you know, Vanderbilt brought a bunch of people up from Nashville, and both fan bases were super into it and super loud and excited. And when the final buzzer rang, the team was pumped and the fan base was excited. Um, I've talked to a few people uh, who are some fans that kind of interact with us on social media that are actually going to New York for the NIT, which is 
crazy if you're not a media member. But awesome, you know, that's the team, the fan base is really going to appreciate, I mean, the, the team's really going to appreciate that. So the answer, yeah, I think they will be. Um, I think the Sean Miller momentum is coming, going really strong right now. So yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think if they do find a pull this off, you know, they probably want to, they probably want a little bit more of Washington State than they do Texas A&M as far as the matchup. But I think that they, uh, they'd be definitely excited if they win this, just kind of have some good, good vibes going into the offseason. Yeah, and so speaking of this offseason, so even though it hasn't started for Xavier yet, they did make maybe the biggest coaching splash, or at least one that got the most attention, getting Sean Miller back yeah. after it's been over 10 years since he was last at Xavier. What was the general reaction from the fan base? Is this something that people have been maybe hoping for as a pipe dream for a while? Or were there any people who were like, ah, I'm not sure about this after what happened at Arizona? Or is the overall reaction like, I mean, it, it sure sounds like there's a lot of excitement around the program right now. I would say it's 90-10 excitement. 90 are very, very pumped. And there are that 10% that's very optimistic and worried. Um, so I've been to a few. And so to kind of give a background, I cover Xavier, I cover the University of Cincinnati, and I cover Northern Kentucky. So if you think about those programs the last six years, they've all had a coaching change and they've all kind of seen some guy come in and go out and things like that. So I've been around a lot of coaching press conferences, a lot of changes um, between, you know, John Brandon and Wes Miller. And now, you know, this one and Travis Steele and so on and so forth. Half of the Cintas center was filled up to see Sean Miller kind of talking. So there's definitely a joint excitement. Um, I put a thing on my Twitter account, just asking Xavier fans, like, how are we feeling after Sean spoke? And everything was like, I want to run through a wall or maybe some very not safe for work tweets or popping up for her to express joy. Um, so it's definitely a lot of excitement. Um, Cam Craft, one of Xavier's four-star commits, announced that he's staying and keeping his LOI after they had Tyrell Ward ask for his release. Though Tyrell Ward did say Xavier's still on the list for him to for a team that school decide on. So Sean's bringing a lot of joy and excitement. He spoke very openly about, look, I haven't made a Final Four. Xavier hasn't made a Final Four. That's what we're aspiring to do, and we're going to make that happen here. No one said, but Sean, Xavier's playing in the NIT Final Four, though. <laughs> yeah, and I think I know what the answer to this question is, but I, as a big fan, I have to ask, do you think there's any chance that Sean Miller would put Dayton back on the schedule, or do you think he would be more likely than Chris Mack and Travis Steele, who – didn't really have any interest in bringing that game back? I do, actually. Um, I wouldn't say I could guarantee it, but what Anthony Grant has been able to do at Dayton, I mean, what this team did this year, they're what, how many freshmen are on that team? Five? Yeah, if you listen to the broadcast, I feel like I've heard 20, 21. <laughs> it's, you never know. They, they yeah. keep adding new freshmen. Between every freshmen and people who only played like 17 games in their freshman year last year, it's, it's around, it's either 10 or 11. That's unbelievably impressive. Uh, Anthony Grant stayed at Dayton when there's a lot of discussion that apparently Florida offered him. That's so cool. Um, I would love nothing more than to see it back. I think Sean will definitely consider it if it's brought up. I don't necessarily think their schedule is set for next year by any means non-conference. They're playing in the PK-80. Obviously, there's the Crosstown shootout with Cincinnati. Um, But really nothing else has come out just yet. So I'm sure Sean's open to it. He has a lot of respect for Anthony Grant as a coach. And um, I think he would definitely love to have that back. I know, like, he talked a lot about what Crosstown means 
uh, to be back and coaching in that game, what that rivalry means. And Xavier and Dayton fans alike both really care about that game still and want to see it back. So I think if the opportunity presents itself, he'd be willing to listen about it. And I mean, for Xavier, if, if you do a home and home, I mean, it's, it's a guaranteed win every other season. Like Dayton's not going to walk into the Cintas Center. And I'm, I'm convinced that it's never going to happen in my lifetime. So at, at the worst, you're going to spread it and go 500. You Plus, steal a couple at UD Arena too, probably. I mean, UD Arena is amazing. I love UD Arena. I, I would love to go back there and work games. I was really hoping Xavier would make the first four so I could go back up there and work a game. We do need to remember in terms of an intimidation factor with the Centos Center, it is basically just a giant classroom. It is. Um, the way that they set up for the student section to be like right above the court and like is awesome. And I think that's like just they bring a whole different atmosphere to the place. So it's pretty cool. And looking historically at this, because the Xavier Twitter account uh, thought it would be fun to try to troll the Dayton fans that they still hold the trophy when they're the ones who who refuse to play the game. But if this is something that still really matters, Dayton leads the all-time series at this point by nine games. It's 85 to 76, which is just a mind-blowing amount of games, especially given that they've played once in the last nine years. That's but Xavier's crazy. won 15 of the last 20. So they're, close, they're closing this gap right now. And right now, I, I think you probably give a slight edge to Xavier moving forward in this series that if they play, I don't know, six, the next six years, Xavier maybe goes four and two and can keep kind of slowly chipping away at that gap. It's very similar with Cincinnati. Um, UC holds the all-time record between the two schools. But if you go look at the history of the Crosstown shootout, Xavier's won. I think 24 of the last 30, including the last three. Um, and Cincinnati fans are always like, you know, Xavier sucks and we're so much better than you. And it's like, well, we kick your ass every year. And they're like, well, we've been to a Final Four. And it's like, congratulations, you went to something 30 years ago. And so that's what always makes people laugh. So I think Xavier fans would love to add additional group of smack talk and, and banter between another fan base. Because I think Xavier fans definitely don't like Dayton fans uh, just because of what that rivalry meant in the A-10 days. But I think they would absolutely love to go back and have those interactions with people again. Yeah, and for people who wonder about which rivalry has more history, we talk so much about the Crosstown shootout. Mm-hmm. But Dayton and Xavier have played almost double the amount of games as Xavier and Cincinnati. Isn't that over insane? Over the two schools' histories. That's so insane. So we'll close it out with this. Uh, we won't ask you to make a prediction on this game, but – I think people at this point, A-10 fans, especially those who remember Sean Miller, are incredibly interested into what is going to happen there. And so I will ask you for a prediction. What is more likely to happen in the next four years? Xavier makes an Elite Eight again, since this is Elite Eight weekend, or the FBI raids Sean Miller's office for the second time this decade? Um, ooh. All right, so... I don't know if you guys read my article about Friday uh, where I talked about like Sean and like everything he talked about in his presser. Um, but what he said was he's learned a lot from how he used to do things and the mistakes he made and doing things the same way for so long. And when he was asked about the Arizona situation, he said, out of respect for the process, I cannot speak on it yet. But when the time comes, I'll be happy to talk about it. So I think the earlier is going to be the case because I know Sean Miller is pretty well aware that if that happens again, he will likely be blackballed from the NCAA. 
there's a pretty good chance that if Sean Baylor gets in trouble again with FBI investigations, that he will not coach again. So I will go with the earlier. All right. So it sounds like Sean has figured out how to not get caught cheating. Maybe Will Wade can take some lessons from him. We know, Bruce Pearl, we know Bruce Pearl figured it out. So <laughs> Don't put those words in my mouth. I like my credential. I don't want to get it taken away. <laughs> well, then I think we might as well just close it out here. Tim Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, and where can everybody find your work? Yeah, uh, so my social media, um, you can check me out at timdaniel518. Uh, that's where I have all my, you know, I'll post like my game, game stuff there. And then our website is 48minutesnetwork.com. Um, and we'll have all of our podcasts that we do. We're big NBA guys, as you can tell by the name, but we do college ball as well because we got credential to do it. So um, we'll talk, we talk a bunch of stuff on there as well. So yeah, um, excited for this. I really enjoyed listening to a couple episodes when you guys invited me. Uh, so I'm excited to be part of this. I, I really like what you guys are doing. I love the A10. So thanks for this. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, and thank you for, jo- for coming on today, Tim. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Three Bid League podcast. We will be back later this week if Bonaventure is to beat Xavier, previewing the NIT final. So keep an eye out for that. If you enjoyed the pod, please give us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a review on there. We're into the final week of college basketball. Hopefully the Bonnies can give us two more entertaining games and we can see those seniors ride off with a trophy. For any-